according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, once again in Matthew chapter 26. We're returning back to Gethsemane. Matthew chapter 26. There's not a lot of difference between the old slideshow and the new slideshow. I just added a couple of things at the end. Perhaps... uh, Perhaps I can show this. Does that show up? Not not really very well. Okay, well we'll let it go then. We'll stay with this one here. Okay. Matthew chapter 26, verse 30 says, After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then in verse 36, Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and they began to be grieved and distressed. He, I'm sorry, began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. All right, and that gets us to Judas's arrival, the kiss, the arrest, and everything that happens there. All right, we study three points of study at this point. The location where this took place under point one, uh, the distinction between the here, the there, and the over there in, in point two. How um, it is interesting the ones that were excluded. Other than Peter, James, and John, they were left at the entrance. They were left here while he went over there. Uh, why were they not permitted to see him in his grief? Uh, why were they not permitted to observe that? Why were they not invited to pray uh, with the Lord concerning these things? Uh, we spoke about it a little bit last week, and I don't know we'll expand a whole lot upon that. But we did discuss the concept to, to chew on and to consider the recognition of capacity. What believers have capacity to join in a prayer endeavor and what believers do not have the capacity to join in a prayer endeavor. What believers would take it the wrong way if they learned uh, that Jesus uh, was was struggling on this night? Uh, Why are they not allowed to hear my soul is deeply troubled to the point of death? Um, I find it remarkable that, that this is at his direction that he leaves the eight and maybe even more than eight if Matthias and 
others were there also. Uh, this naked kid uh, may have been there as well. Um, however many that he leaves there, he only takes three, Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John to, uh, to study this or to, to join in these prayers. Okay? Now, the... Um, oh, I know what I left out of my outline. I definitely want to have the new outline for you today. All right. Well, that's all right. We'll look at the Gospel of Mark and we'll consider who the, who the naked kid is here in this Gospel, even if I don't have the right slideshow to, uh, to take you. All right. Only one-fourth of his disciples have the capacity to share his deepest prayers. I think it's a capacity issue. I'm convinced it's a capacity issue. That he uh, only brings those with him that have the capacity to accept what it is he's going to tell them without either being a stumbling block, uh, a detriment to their own faith, or uh, worse, something that would uh, cause them um, to, to reject him, something that would cause them to, to doubt his own, uh, his own capacity to deal with what he has to deal with coming up here. So I think it is a capacity issue. Watchfulness is, designed, is defined as wakefulness. If they can't keep watch because they can't keep awake, that's a problem. And we have the same issue ourselves. And uh, we want to not get lost in the physical sleep reality that's happening here, but understand the, the metaphor. What does sleep speak to? Uh, what is, if you're spiritually asleep, that's a problem. And if you're spiritually asleep to the day and age in which you live, that's a problem. Time and time again, we're told that we have to be able to understand the signs of the times. We have to have our eyes open. We cannot be ignorant of his devices. We cannot be unaware of what it is that the adversary does in the church age. Let's wake up and realize we are soldiers in the angelic conflict. This is the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. And so sleeping on duty or drinking on duty or any kind of dereliction of duty in, uh, in the soldier function of the Christian way of life is a problem. And uh, the scripture rebukes it. Pastors should rebuke it. And, uh, and there it is. Dealt with that quite a bit last week. First Thessalonians 5, verses 6 and 10. When you go from the rapture passage of chapter 4 to the second advent passage of chapter 5, I think you have a, uh, an important study. All right. Point three then, where we ran out of time. Jesus had greater sorrow than any of his disciples. Indeed, more than any human being in history. I think he had the sum total of all human suffering that he accepted it, that his mind was open to understand it, the totality of what it would mean to be the substitute, to be the substitute not only for our sins, but for those of the whole world. He carried the pains of every human being who ever lived. I think the title, Isaiah 53.3, is instructive. He is the, one and only, the man of sorrows. The man of sorrows acquainted with grief. That's not just a throwaway term. That's not just a meaningless name. We need to start paying more attention to the names that are given. And on this night, he is the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He is being equipped to be the substitute. And if he doesn't pass this test in Gethsemane, he's not qualified for Golgotha. Now, he's still qualified in terms of being sinless and perfect, yes. But he's not qualified to the extent the Father demands for full satisfaction. God the Father demands volitional sacrifices. Not grudgingly, not under compulsion. God loves the cheerful giver. And in order for Jesus Christ to be the cheerful giver, to fully give of Himself on the cross, He has to volitionally know. It cannot be in effect by compulsion, without consent, without full knowledge of what's going on. And so it's because of this knowledge, it's by this knowledge that my righteous one 
becomes the uh, substitute for sinners. He is able to bear their iniquities. And so again, we have a concept that links Matthew 26 with Isaiah 53. Every time I go through this, I'm seeing tighter and tighter and tighter links between Matthew 26 and Isaiah 53. The suffering servant and what it was that he learned. How he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. And how he learned the knowledge that he acquired in the suffering that uh, was the final piece of the puzzle for him to, uh, to accomplish the work of our redemption. Suffering is not always deserved. Suffering can be according to the will of God. Two subpoints under this, A and B. The A and the B that we looked at last week. Suffering is not always deserved. Suffering can be according to the will of God. And I believe we did not fully look at everything there in 1 Peter 4. Is that right? I don't recall that we looked at everything in 1 Peter 4. So let's pick it up there. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. Suffering can be according to the will of God. Suffering can be according to the will of God. And um, it's the reason for rejoicing. Uh, 4.19 in fact says, Those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. If you're in the will of God, then don't lament the suffering. The will of God includes the suffering. So and simply entrust your souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. That's the, that's the conclusion here to 12 through 19. Verse 19 says it all. Suffering according to the will of God. And we spoke about it last week. I'll speak about it again today. I'll keep speaking about it. All right. And you understand that there is a, there is a terrible approach to the Scriptures that many believers fall for, many churches, many ministries promote. I'm not trying to... You understand, when I do these kind of illustrations, I'm not trying to bash other churches. Okay? I'm not cutting down other believers. I'm just warning you that there's bad doctrine out there. And you've got to have your eyes open to what it is. And the attitude that says that believers should not suffer. That's wrong. That's a bad attitude. That's bad doctrine. Believers should suffer. And to the extent that we do suffer, we also will reign. We suffer with Him. It's been, it's been determined for us to not only be saved, but also to suffer for His name's sake. That's part of the predetermined plan of God for your life. We're predestined to be molded to the image of Christ. What does that mean? It means we're going to suffer. That's how he was conform that's how he grew, that's how we're going to grow. Alright. So this attitude out there that, oh, suffering is wrong, or oh, if you're suffering, then then you're doing something wrong, and the whole attitude there. And many, many ministries promote that. It's how so many believers get caught up in the thing. Alright. Well, backing up to verse twelve, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Do not be surprised. Don't act all shocked. Not shouldn't be a newsflash. Shouldn't be uh, something that that uh, causes you to scratch your head. Which comes upon you for your testing, for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. All right. It's not weird. Don't be surprised. It's not strange. It's perfectly normal. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ. Notice, it's not, it's not whether you do or not. You do. And to the degree that you do, meaning um, the more you grow, the deeper it's going to get. The longer you walk in with the Lord, the, the greater you're going to be tested. Um, mature believers face things that the, the babes don't even dream of. Okay, 
And uh, you want victory in these things here because this is what's preparing you for what's coming up. That's the that's the, the real secret to the whole thing. I try telling people when they're, they're despairing, they want to quit, they want to walk away from the Christian way of life, they're tired of the testing. So don't walk away from it. Learn the lesson. Endure to the end. Get out of this what you've got to get out of this because, you know, if you think this is bad, the one you're going through today is equipping you for what's coming up next year. So don't bail on this one. You better learn this lesson now. Learn this lesson now. It's getting rough. It's going to be harder next year. So to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So also the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. How sad is it going to be for the believers that threw away their reward because they kept running from every test, running from every problem, running from all their sufferings, never learning the lessons, never submitting to the will of God for their life. And they're going to have, they, they will have minimized their rejoicing at the Bema. For if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the Spirit of glory and God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, a thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. In other words, make sure all your suffering is undeserved suffering. Make sure it's all uh, the testing of your faith. Make sure that it's all you're, uh, you're innocent in, your, in the integrity of your Christian walk. And don't you dare, if you are uh, walking in darkness and committing all these sins and things, and then when God administers the divine discipline, own up to that. Accept it as divine discipline. Start warning others, saying, don't, don't uh, imitate my divine discipline. See, And don't you dare uh, be the recipient of divine discipline and then act all innocent and try to convince others that you're the next Job. All right? You're, uh, you're not suffering undeserved in that sense. You are, you are facing divine discipline, the chastisement of a child of God. But if anyone suffers as, as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. So your suffering is the opportunity to glorify God. Remember how you do that? Glorify God in your sufferings. Communicate the high regard that you have for God. God is causing you, God is allowing you to suffer. I want to communicate the high regard I have for my God who's allowing me to suffer. All right. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. If it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? All right. In any event, suffering can be according to the will of God. I'll just highlight that 19th verse again for you. Those who suffer according to the will of God. And when you, the next time you encounter someone, I... You know, no one's let me do it yet, but get that Sharpie out and say, you know, let me, can I blot a verse out of your Bible? You obviously don't believe it. And uh, no one's ever let me do it yet. Okay. <laughs> Maybe someday somebody will. Yeah, blot that out, would you? I hate that verse. Well, that's what they're saying. You're telling me that you never suffer according to the will of God? That verse says you do. So who's right, that verse or you? Okay. In any event. All right, point four. Kicking me out of my computer at home. Okay, that's fine. Point four. These pedagogical prayers, these pedagogical prayers illustrate what is possible. What is possible for our salvation and what is possible for God to accomplish. I want to talk to you today about what is possible. And uh, when he's talking about if it, what's possible for him to provide salvation, we can learn from that. And we can make our own application. What's possible for us to receive salvation? What's possible, what's not possible? And how is it that everything that's possible may not be possible? Okay? 
We'll have some fun. You can, you can play with the words and talk about possible and impossible. But recognize something, okay? And this is... Uh, certain, you know, Calvinists may not like this and other folks... Um, it's, it's worth thinking about. Even for the one for whom all things are possible, any particular thing may not be possible in many particular ways or in many particular means. I'm going to say that again. I should have just highlighted that as a separate point of study. So you can chop off point four with the word accomplish and then I'm going to make the rest of that a, a separate principle. Principle for application. Even for the one for whom all things are possible. Any particular thing may not be possible in many particular ways or by many particular means. When it comes to our salvation, it's only possible by one way. Only one way. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now we, we often think of that from our perspective as getting saved. But think, rethink through that verse from Christ's perspective as providing for our salvation. No one comes to the Father. No one has provided the opportunity for eternal life but by me. Only Jesus Christ's faithfulness to the cross is going to bring many sons to glory. And here's the thing. All things are possible. Yes. With God, all things are possible. Do you believe that? I believe that. With God, all things are possible. Yes, I believe that. But I also believe there are things with God that are not possible. <laughs> So am I contradicting myself? No. Is the Bible contradicting itself? No. But what we're doing is we're taking each of these statements and we're placing them within the scope of the whole counsel of God's Word. And we have the recognition of what the all things are and what are, what are the boundaries beyond which we're departing from the intent of the with God all things are possible. Okay? Because when was that promise made? When are such statements made? They're made when they're encouraging believers for God to provide for your needs or for God to, to, uh, to answer your testing or for God to provide for you in your, in your circumstances and details of life. Uh, that statement, with God all things are possible, is not communicated in the context of anything that a twisted, fallen, carnal mind can imagine. Can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? And the self-contradictory absurdities that a, a darkened mind would, would challenge or throw out there as if somehow there's merit to that. As if somehow the, the absurd uh, thesis has any kind of validity in, uh, in a logical examination of the nature of God. There are many things God cannot do. God cannot lie. It is impossible for God to lie. Okay? So, if, if you ever get in these philosophical discussions with people... It may be fruitful. And this is the thing. If, if somebody's dealing with a... If they have a flawed definition of omnipotence that says God can do anything, just stop them and say, can I modify that understanding of omnipotence? Because there are things God cannot do. He cannot abide iniquity in the solemn assembly. He cannot compromise His nature. He cannot change. He cannot stop being Himself. His faithfulness is an eternal faithfulness because He is immutable. Perfection demands immutability. 
If God could ever change, then that means His present perfection could someday be imperfect. Right? Because you can't, you can't improve on perfection. If God could improve, then that means that presently He's not perfect. But we know He is perfect. He's eternally perfect. He always has been, always will be perfect. He cannot change. Any change from perfection would be an imperfection. Like any, any, any departure. If you're at the North Pole and you take ten steps, whatever direction you go is south. Right? So, God's perfection is, is, uh, is, is perfection. And any departure from that, any change from that would then be the imperfection, in which case God would stop being God. And so we understand the essence of immutability. God does not change. And the aspect that there are things He cannot do. He cannot change. He cannot lie. He is, he is faithful and true, and He cannot utter that which is not true. Okay? He cannot abide iniquity in the solemn assembly. He cannot, uh, for example compromise his righteousness and his justice in order to love somebody and force them to be saved. He cannot save them without, the, without his justice being satisfied. See, until justice is satisfied, he can't bring those sons to glory. That's why their sins were covered. They were passed over. They weren't removed until the cross. That's why believers that died in the Old Testament went to Abraham's bosom. Because the sin's not removed until the Lamb of God removes the sin of the world and the Father is satisfied. Now, they're still saved. He doesn't put them in torments. He puts them in comfort in Abraham's bosom until the cross. So there's a lot of things that are not possible. And this is what Jesus is wrestling with now. So, um, and this is the kind of thing, uh, and, and we do this a lot. This is, and we're, we're commanded to do this. We're commanded to rightly divide the word of truth. We're commanded to compare Scripture with Scripture. Um, we have things that, that people camp on as a, as, a, as a pet verse, right? And they, and they camp on it. For example, no one comes to the Father but by me. Okay? There are some who do. <laughs> no one can come. Well, those who do come. You have, you have uh, whosoever comes. And you have, you, you know, if, if you have a verse like, with God all things are possible, say, great, I believe that, I accept that. But I also have this verse over here that says it is impossible for God to lie. Okay? So I'm agreeing with you on the verse here that you're, you're worshiping and celebrating and idolizing. I, I agree with you on that verse. Yes, that verse is true. Okay. I've been accused of not believing in predestination, for example. What are you talking about? I believe in predestination. I teach this verse. But I also teach this verse. Okay? I teach both these verses. But because I don't teach it the way you teach it, you say I don't teach it. That's not right. Anyway, back on topic. Um, yes, with God, everything is possible. But God's not going to take an unbeliever to heaven. It's not possible for God to do that. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's not even possible for God. That's why God doesn't take us to heaven in our flesh and blood. That's why God gives us a new body. So all things are possible, but not, they're not possible in every particular way. It's possible for me to go to heaven. Not by my righteousness. By the provision He made through Christ on the cross. Only through that means is it possible for me to go to heaven. Okay? So, even for the one for whom all things are possible, any particular thing may not be possible in many particular ways. There, there may be only one or two particular ways. And for salvation, there may only be one particular. There is only one particular way. Or means. By many particular means. Okay? 
You know, if you think about how you got saved, think about who led you to Christ. Think about the, the, where you were in your life, the circumstances, the conditions, the people involved, the things involved. All right. And you realize very quickly that had some things been different, had certain circumstances been different, had certain people been different, or had, you know, there's, there's all kinds of scenarios whereby you would have rejected that gospel message. Okay? Think about it. Think about how, you know, if someone would have maybe hit you with a high-pressure thing or they'd have hit you with some angry, bobble-thumping thing or they'd hit you with some kind of a, uh, a phony thing, okay? And you'd have just looked at that and said, what a bunch of bunk. Right, I don't know part of that. That's goofy. And maybe there were episodes like that prior to the one that finally got hold of you. That's what I love about how God in His common grace draws us and brings us to that moment. So there are many particular ways and many particular means that may not be possible to accomplish the will of God. But the way that he wants to have it accomplished is the way that it gets accomplished. And God himself has certain have-tos. And Jesus realizes this. The cross is a have-to. If he doesn't do it, it won't, it won't get done. It's not going to happen. So I return now to Matthew's prayer. And Matthew has the most developed um, narrative, so we'll start with that. So point A, Matthew's recorded prayers. Guess what subpoint B is going to be? Mark's recorded prayers. And then in C, I'll give you Luke's recorded prayers. And then I'll summarize them with point D. Matthew's recorded prayers. There are three that are stated. In fact, if we didn't have the gospel in Matthew, we wouldn't know that he kept coming back and had three separate prayers. Um, waking up his disciples the first time, not waking them up the second time, and then waking them up the third time, not so he can go pray again, but so that he so they could watch him get arrested. Okay. Prayer number one, my father, if it is possible. Now, you can write it down word for word if you like, or you can just summarize it. Um, remember, we don't we typically throughout the New Testament do not have verbatim quotes we do not have verbatim quotes uh they get punctuated that way they get more often than not i mean occasionally there is there's an exact word for word citation but not always and in fact very rarely i think we read a lot of our modern practices into ancient uh manuscripts and we're wrong when we do that So, um, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, and then we have a comma and an open quotation mark and words in red followed by a closed quotation mark. And we assume that what we have there is verbatim, word for word, a, a literal transcription of the very words he spoke. Okay? Okay? can't take it that way um it's not how they wrote in the ancient world that's not how now in a handful of cases we have spoken words that that then the author goes to very uh to the extent of explaining or translating it saying you know the hebrew word for this or the aramaic word for this the latin word you know and so forth this was written in koine greek i i doubt 
seriously that Jesus was praying to the Father in Koine Greek. I believe he knew Koine Greek. I believe he knew Latin. I believe he knew Hebrew. I believe he knew Aramaic. What language did he speak on a daily basis? What language did he speak to his disciples when he was teaching them? What language did he speak to the crowds when he was addressing them? And what language did he pray in? Okay. If you happen to be bilingual or trilingual or what have you. Okay. What language do you pray in? And if you're praying, maybe you're praying in a prayer meeting in a group with... with uh, I'm kind of curious. Katie, do you, do you pray in Spanish? What's that? Okay, yeah. See, that's the thing. When I go to Ukraine, they, they pray a lot in Russian. They pray a lot in... Some pray in Ukrainian. Often they pray in English. If they're praying with us Americans, you know. Um, and it's kind of interesting. What, what language is Jesus praying in here? So, the point being, as Matthew records this in the Greek language to record it in Scripture, uh, we're, we're more relaxed about exact wordage, okay? Because the Holy Spirit is conveying the sense of what is prayed, what we call an indirect quote rather than a direct quote. All right. So, he prays, uh, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. First thing he says, If it is possible. If it is possible. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. Let this cup pass from me. If possible, let it pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. The only circumstance where I don't want you to do this is if such a thing would be the application of my will and be in violation of your will. Okay? That's his first prayer. And I do find an, an, an intensification of it when he comes back the second time. And so he says, um, you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying. And, and to me, the best explanation for what is on his mind as he prays these prayers is the warning that he's given these disciples in between these prayers. You men could not keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. For the Spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Is there, a, is there a point of vulnerability for our Savior on this night? Well, it's not His spirit. It's not His human spirit. But the flesh is weak. He is in a human body. A human body has vulnerabilities. A human body can be injured. A human body can be uh, can uh, can go through the, the pain and suffering process that has impact in the soul. Okay? And so if in fact, as he starts sweating these great drops of blood, as he starts going through this agony, if in fact the, uh, the physical uh, anguish impacts his soul, what's he afraid of? What's the, what's the risk? What's the, uh, the danger what are the unthinkable consequences should he fail? Okay. Now, part of what we'll have to address, because a lot of believers hate what, what you're hearing this morning. They hate it. They hate the words I just said. The consequences should he fail. And I've seen clenched fists. I've seen bulging veins and necks. As angry believers, furiously, say, it's not possible. He could not have failed. How dare you? 
Our Savior is perfect. He's sinless. There is no way He could have failed. There was no potential for that. There was no danger of that ever in any way. See? And I find that interesting. Then, is this whole thing just a, an act? Is it a drama? Is it a pantomime? Is he, is he going through the motions? Is he acting like uh, like this hurts? Okay. Is he lying to the disciples when he said, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death? Is the warning useless when he says, keep praying that you may not enter temptation? Why does he say the flesh is weak? I believe he says the flesh is weak because the flesh is weak. <laughs> All right? Humanity has weaknesses. But it's when we're weak that we're truly strong. It's then that we come to realize God's grace and God's power pouring into us. That's why we have this treasure in earthen vessels. All right, now. First prayer, if. If it is possible. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. Let this cup pass from me. If there's any way to do it, if there's any way to do it, let's, let's go that way. Yet not as I will, but as you will. This is a confession that his human volition, his preferences, his, um, how do you call it here in the South? Druthers. Okay. If I had my druthers. And there's nothing wrong with confessing that. It's not a sin to confess that. It's not a sin to be honest with the Father and say, it's not what I would have chosen. <laughs> yeah. But then again, I'm not, I'm not the one that put forth the, the plan of God for the ages. It's not my plan we're following. It's your plan we're following. Not the way I would have done it. Not what I would have done. Not as I will, but as you will. And then his second prayer. My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it. Okay. In other words, when do you pass the cup? You pass the cup either either way. You pass the cup either having drunk it or you pass the cup having not drunk it. And Jesus says, you know what? This cup can pass away as soon as I've finished drinking it. <laughs> then the cup is gone. And the work is complete. And the Father will be satisfied. If this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And he says, I agree. If this is the only way, if, because I am the way, the truth, and the life. If my drinking it is the only way to have this cup passed away, and it is, it's the only way that it's the only way for God's wrath to be poured out on all sin and rebellion. The only way. Your will be done. And then the third prayer. We don't even have a, a citation in the third prayer. It just says, he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Saying the same thing once more. The same thing as what? I thought he said two different things. A lot of folks take this as saying, well, he said the second prayer. He repeated the second prayer for prayer number three. Prayer number three was the same thing as prayer number two. The more I look at this, the more I suspect that, no, the same thing is the same thing as prayer number two, which was also the same thing as prayer number one. They were really the same thing all three times. All right. The recognition that if it's possible, I'd like it to be passed. 
but it cannot pass unless I drink it, so it's not possible. So your will be done. And he's willing to do it. Doesn't want to, but he loves the Father, so he will. These are the prayers as recorded in Matthew. All right, the prayers recorded in Mark. Mark 14, 36. You can turn over there if you'd like. Mark 14, 36. It's in Mark that we have the naked guy. I thought I had a point of study in the outline about Mark the naked guy, but I don't see it in here now. All right. Here's Mark's recorded prayer. It's an Abba Father prayer. It's an Abba Father prayer. Abba is Aramaic. I suspect maybe he was speaking in Aramaic. If that was the colloquial language of the population, okay, I believe it was the colloquial language. It was the spoken language, the common language, the household language in Galilee, certainly. Um, there are differing accounts. In fact, not every scholar today agrees about how lost the Hebrew language was. I think that clearly it had a liturgical use uh, in the temple. It had a liturgical use in the rituals and, and so forth. It was studied by the rabbis. Uh, but it was likely not uh, spoken on a daily basis. It was likely not even used in teaching on a daily basis. That's why we have the Targums, the Aramaic Targums, commentaries on the Hebrew Scriptures that were being produced at this time, earlier and later and at this time. And so in Mark 14.36, um, he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what, is I, not what I will, but what you will. And so just the use of Abba there gives us the hint there that he was uh, speaking in Aramaic. And of course, we've studied the Abba Father prayers recently in the book of Romans because that comes up in Romans chapter 8. You and I have the Holy Spirit within us and it's that Holy Spirit that testifies to our human spirit that we are children of God. And that testimony of sonship is what causes us to cry out Abba Father when we're in our own Gethsemanes. Okay? This, uh, that's why this passage, I think, gets pretty... Uh, Gets pretty uh, direct. All right. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, why are you asleep? And that's a little bit of a different twist to it because, uh, you know, in Matthew it's just recorded that he found them all asleep and he yelled at all three of them. But here, Mark records that, yeah, he yelled at all three of them, but he singled out Peter. He singled out Peter, calling him by his Hebrew name, Simon. Simon's his Hebrew name. Cephas is his Aramaic name, and Peter is his. Greek name. Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, that's the warning. That's the admonition. Repeated both in Matthew and in Mark. He went away and prayed, saying the same words. And he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. They did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Oh, I know why. I know why. The naked guy doesn't show up till after the arrest. Okay. That's why I took it out. I was wrong to put it in in the first place. Uh, not till verse 51 there of Mark 14. After Jesus gets arrested, these strange verses in 51 and 52, they, they're not recorded in Matthew, they're not recorded in Luke, they're not recorded in John. But after the soldiers haul him away, 
A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. And that's it. Those are the two verses, okay? Because once you get to verse 53, then we're following Jesus again to his trials and the different things that happen there. So as we uh, just chew on it, if you don't already know the answer or my theory to that, um, just chew on it. And when we get to episode 25 with the arrest, we will we will talk about naked men in public parks. All right. <laughs> so there's Mark's recorded prayer. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. You know, he's telling God what to do. Remove this cup from me. Take it away. It's very human to ask for your problems to go away. And um, when you stop yourself and say, all right, but go away in the right way. <laughs> all right. Go away at the ekpasis, at the victorious conclusion. End this test at the appropriate uh, way that achieves everything for which you sent it. Then... Uh, you're not grumbling. At that point, you're lamenting. <laughs> and uh, the Father validates that. All right, the Gospel of Luke. Luke's recorded prayer. Similar to, to, um, similar to Mark's recorded prayer. Does not include the Abba. Just says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Again, telling him what to do. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. All right. Um, there's more detail in Luke. No, we can let that go. All right. Luke's recorded prayer. Father, if you are willing, if you are willing. Now, let me ask you something. I, I think what we see here, we see genuine statements on the Lord's part. If you are willing, such and such, but not my will, but yours be done. Okay. I think often, all too frequently, I'll just speak for myself, I won't speak for any of you, but all too often we've learned the code. We've learned the language. We've learned how to speak. We've learned how to, we're fluent in prayer speak. And by being fluent in prayer speak, oftentimes we start with Father or Dear Heavenly Father or what have you. And we end all our prayers with, in Jesus' name, amen. We learn the prayer speak. It becomes a formula. It becomes an incantation. We don't even think about it. And then, here's the other phrase we use a lot. Father, if it could be your will. Heavenly Father, if it could be your will. And we use it so much, we don't even think about it anymore. And we use it, we, we attach it in front of what it is we're asking for. Or what we really want. Uh, something I really want. I want it a lot. I'm praying for it a lot. I, you know, whatever it is. And so I say, if it could be your will, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And I could remove the phrase, if it be your will, and it wouldn't really change the sense of what I'm asking for. I could say, dear Heavenly Father, I want this. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay? And the reason why it doesn't fundamentally change it is because I'm throwing the phrase in there, but I'm not meaning it when I throw it in there. And when I throw the phrase in there, I'm not adding to it, yet not my will but thine be done. Okay? So, uh, I need to start adding that to the, if it could be your will. 
you know, father, my mother's in a rehab center at the moment. She's trying to recover and trying to regain her uh, through physical therapy, occupational therapy, trying to regain her confidence and her skills and, and be able to be, uh, you know, self-reliant, return to her home and keep house and take care of dad and all that. Uh, so, Father, if it could be your will, then oversee her her uh, therapy and her rehab. And, and, uh, and this is today marks one week. Tomorrow marks two weeks. Her target for uh, return home. If it could be your will. But do we mean that? What if it's not His will? Do we follow it up with, yet not my will, but thy will be done? Do we follow it up with, now, Father, I don't know the end from the beginning, and I don't know all the fruit that you are achieving through this test. I don't know what, what she's supposed to learn, what my dad's supposed to learn, what I'm supposed to learn, what our family's supposed to learn, what our church is supposed to learn. And I don't know what your will is. Your will may not be for a two-week two rehab. All right? Not my will, but yours be done. What this says, Father, is that my understanding is finite. My, I don't have all the information. And I don't know what this test is going to do next week, next month, next year, 50 years from now. Okay? So whatever needs to happen, whatever the lessons are that are going to be learned here, make them happen. Not my will, but yours be done. We want to be able to pray that with a legitimacy. We want to pray that and mean that. All right. <laughs> so... Point D, Jesus' warning to the three. Jesus' warning to the three provides an indication. He's not just warning them, although they should take heed to the warning for their own sake. But more than that, it provides an indication as to his own personal concern. What is it that he keeps? Why does he want them to pray with him? Why do they need to keep watch? What are they watching out for? Jesus' warning to the three provides an indication as to his personal concern. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What were these three supposed to do? Keep, keep, stay there. Pray. Keep watch. Watching out for what? Watching out for soldiers to come in? Keep the soldiers out? Is that what they were watching for? Or were they watching him? Keep watch with me. What were they watching for? And that they kept falling asleep. You know, if he would have bailed, if he would have failed this test and bailed and just walked away, they'd have never seen it. <laughs> they would have never seen it. They were sleeping on duty. What if he fails in this test? What if he fails and says, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can do this. I can't handle this. Now, if they were awake and if they were alert, if they were watching, then he could have said, I don't know if I could do this. They could have been right there with him, right? Yes, you can. For this purpose, you, for this purpose you came to this hour. For the Father's purpose, you were designed for this. You were equipped for this. He's going to sustain you. Remember, he's, he's in his humanity here. He's not tapping into omniscience. He doesn't know all things. He doesn't know what you and I know. He doesn't know. I mean, he can anticipate. He knows the doctrine of Jonah. He knows the third day resurrection, but he's not looking at it with hindsight. Okay? And he told them this. I'm going to die. I'm, on the third day, I will rise again. He's told them that. 
But volitionally in his humanity, he has to believe that. He has to live that. He has to, you know, this is, this is put up or shut up time. It's the doctrine I know. It's the doctrine I teach. It's the doctrine I'm going to live. On the third day, I'm rising again. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak. Now, my answer to those who insist on the fact that he could not sin. Yes, as God, he could not sin. No question. Deity cannot sin. But he's not simply God alone. He's deity and humanity. He's the God-man. And he has a human body. A human body that's going to be abused within, you know, to a standard that you can't imagine the very next morning, the very next day. He's going to go physically, he's going to go through it. And um, he's concerned. He's concerned about the weakness of the humanity. And he wants them to pray for him, to support him in what he's concerned about. All right. Now, the, uh, in the plan of God, of course, when, when God the Father put this plan into motion in the divine decrees, God the Father, with his foreknowledge, knows that Jesus will be victorious at Gethsemane. He will be victorious at Golgotha. And he knows that. The Father knows that before he puts him in those tests. And God the Son knew that as He agreed to the divine decrees before the foundation of the world. But then God the Son emptied Himself and took on the form of humanity and lived His earthly experience without taking advantage of His omniscience, of His omni-attributes. He laid aside His privileges. He was tempted in all things even as we are yet without sin. And so, the, uh, to, the, to the crowd that insists on the fact that, well, he, uh, he wasn't really tested as we are. Really? Or he knew, he knew he couldn't fail. He knew this wasn't a real temptation. Did he know that? His deity knew that, but did his humanity know that? When did, when did Joseph teach him that? And what Scripture did he use to teach him that? Okay. What, what Old Testament book taught him that? Okay. Because this is how he grew. He grew through the Scriptures. He was powerful in the Scriptures. And Joseph, I, I'm convinced Joseph is one of the most amazing believers we'll ever meet. Because he was the, the man that God selected to, to be the stepfather to, uh, you know, the adopted father to our Savior's humanity. And by the time he was 12 years old, he was dazzling the, the doctors and the, the PhD types in the, in the temple. Yeah, imagine what Joseph could have impressed him with. <laughs> okay. So, uh, well, they couldn't, uh, they wouldn't be impressed with a carpenter for anything, you know. But this 12-year-old kid, he dazzled him. Now, he was concerned. He did not know that he could not fail. That's my, that's my point. Jesus does not know how the rest of this night's going to go, how the trials are going to go, how, how he's going to survive the beatings, how he's going to survive physically, what shape his soul is going to be in as a consequence to the damage to his body the next day. And he's concerned. He's concerned because if he does not get through to the Tetelestai, will it really be finished? Okay. So this is his concern. And he wants, his, he wants Peter, James, and John to pray with him about this concern. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
All right. Finally, then, we've got Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke. And this is where we should have had an A and a B, but I don't have the subpoints with the A and the B for you. <clears throat> Dr. Luke. Luke 22, verses 43 and 44. All right. Dr. Luke describes the angelic ministrations Jesus was sustained by and also provides a medical description of the physical symptoms caused by Jesus' psychological anguish. He provides a medical description of the physical symptoms caused by Jesus' psychological anguish. Verses 43 and 44 of Luke 22. Try to remember off the top of my head what the A and the B were about. Um, the A is uh, a text criticism issue. These verses are skeptical, by the way, in the Greek manuscripts. Um, although my New American Standard Bible doesn't even have a footnote. Does your Bible have a footnote? You got a margin, marginal note? I think the New King James has a little footnote that criticizes the Nestle uh, text. And by the way, I, th I find it remarkable. The Nestle text puts these verses in brackets. And the New American Standard is largely a product of the Nestle text. But the New American Standard, the Lockman Foundation, didn't feel it worthwhile to even indicate that there is a question about these verses. All right. We read, An angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. All right. So the angelic ministrations. Now, this uh, is not the first time this has ever happened. It is uh, temptation in the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4. In fact, uh, it's, it's, there is a difference. In Matthew 4, it was plural angels. Here it's a single angel. In Matthew 4, they came ministering, diakoneo, ministering, deaconing, serving. Here, the single angel comes strengthening, strengthening. So there are distinctions between Matthew 4 and Luke 22. I accept these as valid verses. Um, I, I think their removal in certain manuscript traditions is, is on the part of some, as I was just talking about, that can't bear the thought of our Savior having weaknesses. And some scribes didn't like the fact that uh, Jesus and His humanity needed an angel to strengthen Him this night. Or that, that He was sweating these great drops of blood. And so these verses got removed. And, and in other cases, they got moved. There are manuscripts that put these two verses in, Mark, in Matthew 26. Okay? These verses show up in Matthew in certain families. The family 13 of, of uh, minuscule manuscripts puts these two verses in, in the Gospel of Matthew instead of the Gospel of Luke. In any event, we can discuss that. 
there is no doubt, though, that angels ministered to him. As I said, Matthew 4 is, is indisputable. Angels did minister to him. I think angels minister to us. Hebrews 2 says that, that that's what angels are. They are ministering spirits sent out to render service on behalf of those who inherit salvation. They function in the invisible realm and they minister to us. They are our deacons. Okay? We understand what deacons are. There's deacons in a church. Well, believers have deacons. Okay, so let me close with that. Let's look at um, Hebrews. It's the last verse of Hebrews 2. And, uh, I'm sorry, the last verse of Hebrews 1. If we get to Hebrews 2. In the section where uh, we have Christ's superiority over the angels. It says, Are they not all? This is to which of the angels, to which of the angels did he ever say, Sit at my right hand? No angel is entitled to the throne of the right hand of God. Uh, angels, we're told, have to worship. If you back up to uh, verse 5, To which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son? Okay. No angel was begotten by the Father and invested with a human nature. No angel was put in hypostatic union. The angel man, right? With a, with a, with a, a human spirit. No. To which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Uh, the, the, the highest angels are called sons of God, but they're not begotten sons. Likewise, to which of the angels did he say, uh, Sit on my right hand. Um, see, angels are here to worship. Let all the angels of God worship Him. And of the angels, he says, verse 7, who makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. You know, we have hurricanes. We have wildfires. It's a wildfire that swept through Bastrop last year. Maybe that was an angel. You ever think of that? Did God send an angel to accomplish His purpose? Hurricane Andrew, Hurricane whatever. Are these... Meteorological weather phenomena? Alright, they're winds, they're fires. Uh, to which of the angels did he ever say, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool to your feet? Are they not all, here we go, ministering spirits? They're deacons. Sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. And the things they do now, the things they do now, the things they will continue to do, What's your household staff going to be like when you when you enter into your mansion? In any event. That's why they were created. That's why they were designed. They're working even now. I've got some suspicions. Of course, they're invisible. But I, uh, I, I believe uh, I can point to some points in my life that uh, either an angel grabbed hold of me and kept me alive or the hand of God Himself. Okay. Different things there. Father, I thank You for Gethsemane. I thank You for our Savior. I thank You for our time today. We've run out of time. But Father, I just rejoice at how faithful You are. Open our eyes to these truths. Remind us of them as we go through our own Gethsemane. And maybe, uh, Father, we've got a, a body of disciples that we eat with, but it's a much smaller that we can pray with. He ate with uh, twelve, and one of them went out to betray Him. And then He taught eleven. And then he prayed with three. And then they kept falling asleep. Certain things I'm going to have to face on my own. 
certain things I'll face with a small group. I thank you. I've got faithful deacons. I've got faithful men, and uh, and they're not. Uh, their faith isn't shattered if they see that their pastor is discouraged, and they'll pray with their pastor. But sometimes, when everyone abandons, when everyone deserts, when everyone else falls asleep, if it's just one on one, even then, Father, we're not alone, because you are always with us. And I thank you for that. So, Father. Let Gethsemane continue to bear fruit as each one of us applies this truth. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.